we are live from the Empire of Lies. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines, an oasis of free speech, open debate, and, yes, truth in the Empire of Lies. I'm Lee Stranahan, and we're joined on Truth Tuesday by the great Jason Goodman, today on The Backstory. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I am excited and delighted to be here, Lee. How are you? Well, you know, delighted, maybe not, but I'm happy to be here. (laughs) I I just don't want to sound too frou-frou. So we got a great show today, Jason, because you know there's a lot going on in Italy. Have you heard about this stuff? Have you heard about the censorship? I heard that they're really upset and they took down uh, the speech of the new prime minister, yeah. Yes, which is bizarre, if you think about it. That's bizarre, and that should be wrong. Of course. No social media company should be doing that sort of thing. Do you agree? Well, especially not Twitter to Donald Trump, but uh, this seems to be the new normally. But we'll be talking about that stuff going on in Italy with a great writer, Andrew Spanis. He sounds Greek, and he is, but he's in Italy. So we'll be talking to him in the first hour. Then the second hour, we'll be talking about immigration with the great Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. That's what's coming up. And your calls, 202-521-1320. And Jason, what's the name of the show? This is The Backstory. Now, the big news, I guess, right now is Elon Musk. Would you agree? Well, it's just minutes ago. He's now officially agreed to close the deal with Twitter at the uh, 54.20 per share, which makes it a $44 billion buy. The stock exploded earlier today. Now, I find it interesting that this happened the day after Elon Musk offered a proposal to end the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. And Ukraine bots went nuts. A whole army of Ukraine bots. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jason? Absolutely. I've been following it quite closely, Lee. I think you know I've been very interested in this Elon Musk Twitter deal since the day it was announced. And it's closely tied, given the timing and the reaction from Nina Jankowicz, I would say, it's closely tied at least to the revelation, the public revelation of the existence of the Disinformation Governance Board, because that was really announced to the public only days after Elon Musk said that he wanted to buy Twitter to restore the First Amendment. Now, Russia has come out, and after Elon Musk, did you see his proposal? Yes. And his proposal was, redo to the elections, the referendums they just had, with UN backing. And in a sense, I'm in favor of that. I don't think Russia should have to do it. I don't think it, it... needs to do it. But if it would shut people the hell up, I'm in favor of it. Do you know what I'm saying? If the U.S. agreed to that and said, we'll stand by the vote, I'm confident Mm -hmm. the vote would come out more or less the same way. Does that make sense? I I will slightly disagree, because I would say that if the U.S. or the U.N. agreed to that, it would only be because they were confident that they could manipulate the outcome. 
So I'm a bit concerned. I mean, I like where Elon Musk is coming from with the idea, but I just don't trust the UN or the United States sufficiently. I don't either, but I trust the people. I, I trust the people of Donbass. There's no way they could do that in Donbass. They have no Soros NGO structure in place to mess with elections. Good point. They have no Good point. And the people over there, it's an it's such an overwhelming thing, and urge people to show up with cameras and interview people. I just don't see any way they'd be able to do that. So that's a good point. It's a, it's a good concern. I think you're right to be concerned, but that's my take is they would lose. And therefore the U S would never agree. And Ukraine what? therefore would never agree. But I think yeah. Elon Musk was making a proposal that he thought was reasonable. And it was yeah. in a sense. But mm -hmm. he doesn't understand he's not dealing with the U.S. or Ukraine who is reasonable. Do you agree with me, Jason? I do. And I've noticed something, Lee. A lot of people like Elon Musk. And when I say that, I mean people who have succeeded in the United States to a tremendous degree. They sort of inherently, whether it's conscious or subconscious, they have a lot of faith in the United States and the U.S. system. Like even somebody like Charles Ortel, there's a lot of stuff. When I first met Charles, you know, he was very dialed in on the Clinton Foundation. But I think there are a lot of things that I discussed that when I first met Charles, he thought were silly or conspiracy theories or whatever. And now, after five, six years of working together so closely and him seeing so many of the things that I've said and spoken about actually being backed by evidence, I think he now realizes that there's a lot more going on that we've been lied to about. And I'm just concerned that somebody like Elon Musk may not realize the degree to which social engineering and manipulation, you know, he thinks Putin has more money than him. He's publicly said Putin has a lot more money than me. I find that incorrect. Right. It's, it's bizarre. And it's, it's yes. anti-Putin propaganda. And I think, but I think he's very falling good. for it. I think he's falling for it, not deliberately spreading it. I have no evidence that Elon Musk is deliberately spreading anti-Putin propaganda. I think he's falling for it. And I think he may be wising up a little bit. Right. I think right. what happened yesterday when he saw all he thought from his perspective, hey, I'm helping. I'm making right. a reasonable proposal. And then for right. him to get attacked by Ukrainian bots, an army of them. I yeah. think potentially he learned a lesson. What do you think, Jason? Well, I want to ask you a question because it seems crazy to me that Elon Musk would just say, okay, those bots got upset, so let me go spend $44 billion on something that's worth, you know, uh, arguably uh, a quarter or a tenth of that. Um, do you think that Elon Musk said, you know what, rather than going through all of this court stuff, let me just buy it. And then once I own it, I'm going to you know, bring the criminals who are running this thing to justice, including those behind the Ukraine bot army that seems to have control over Twitter. I was thinking about it today, and that's a good summary of what I think he's thinking. Uh, yeah. I think he's basically like, you know, he, he, Everybody has a plan going in, but right, eventually, exactly. right. And, and you're thinking in of the Vegas, Mike Tyson quote. You're thinking of the Mike Tyson quote, which is that every everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. That's right. And I've seen it in gambling. 
in Las Vegas. People go in with a plan. But then after a couple hours, they simply get tired. And so they make big bets knowing that they may lose. Have you seen this before? Where people make big bets knowing that they may lose, but at least they're done for the night. Right. I don't think that's what Elon, it does, it does. But that's not happening on a billion dollar scale and that becomes an emotional thing. Maybe, I don't know Elon Musk. He could be doing anything. But, you know, somebody said to me, oh, he's probably thinking the legal bill is going to be too high. I mean, the thing that people need to understand is the offer that he's made is to buy it at $54.20, which is $12 more per share than it opened at this morning and arguably 30 to $40 more than it's actually worth based on the financial performance and the value uh, most people see on this company. So just throwing in the towel to, to, to the tune of 20 to $30 billion, where a lot of it is other people's money, I think Elon Musk has had a plan for what he's doing from the beginning. And I don't think he's wavered from that plan. I think he might be changing uh, certain aspects of the approach right now, but I think there's more in store for the people that have manipulated Twitter for the past 16 years, and I wouldn't count Elon Musk out. No, and I I think he's going to do something, but I'll say this in general. Uh, If people think they know what it's like to be a billionaire, you really (laughs) don't. No, I mean it. I I swear to God. You can imagine, because I was talking to someone who works with a billionaire, a couple of years ago, and I was talking about Robert Mercer, who was Steve Bannon's boss. You know the Mercers. You've heard of them, yeah, right? Yes, I have. So Robert Mercer was so rich, he had a person who was his, like, maid attendant, whoever, who cleaned his bathroom. Now, you can imagine that, and that, that, that makes sense, right? But yeah. they threw out, they started a new, fresh tube of toothpaste Every day, because Robert Mercer did not like dealing with toothpaste half empty. Whoa. Right? Half empty, but I mean, is using half a tube every day? (laughs) But he didn't care. He liked a fresh tube of toothpaste. And I don't say people can't conceive of that financially, because if you think about it, that costs what? Four or five bucks a day? Yeah. So that's really like a couple hundred bucks over the course of a month. But would that even occur to you, Jason? You could afford it, maybe 200 bucks a month. But would it occur to you? No, it's just a huge waste of toothpaste. And also, I like fancy organic toothpaste that doesn't have chemicals in it. It's a lot more than four bucks. So I I, I squeeze the tube of toothpaste so hard until the bitter end it's like breaking my fingers (laughs) well also uh the peter Thiel, the billionaire has a car taking places and he has the car and the driver sit outside wherever he is with the engine running so he doesn't Mm. have to wait for the engine turnover Mm, that's just bit much yeah so but he's a billionaire so this is the way they think. So what yeah. is a lot of money to Elon Musk? We really don't know. Does that make sense, Correct. Jason? Yes, but I think the $20 billion 
might be more than the toothpaste, and I don't think he would risk that. But uh, yeah, he's got some play. He might say twenty billion is worth it to arrest all these criminals, but I don't think he's just going to throw in the towel and buy a crappy social media network for twenty billion because he feels defeated. Yeah, no, and I think it's not defeated so much as feeling like not going through a fight. Does that make right. sense? But let's talk about Maybe. Italy. We we have yeah. Andrew Spanish on the line and coming up to explain to us what's going on. And there's some new stuff with Italy's energy assets from Russia. We'll talk about huh. today as well. Let's take Great. a short break. And Jason, take us to the commercial, please. Leave this is the backstory. Backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Join us now online, Andrew Spanis, the great writer and geopolitical analyst. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Hi, guys. Doing well. Great. So, Jason and I were talking about Elon Musk, but let's start with Andrew talking about somebody who's even harder, I think, to figure out, Erdogan from Turkey. Would you agree mm. that Erdogan's sometimes very hard to figure out? For instance, he eventually buckled and said he'd support Sweden and Finland joining NATO. But now he's back to not being so sure. Have you been following that situation with Erdogan? Well, Erdogan for years now has been uh, playing both sides. Uh, and he's put himself in the position where he's He's able to do that uh, because Turkey is a is a NATO member, of course, but he also uh, developed relations with Russia over the past past years, including buying military equipment from them. Uh, there were some clashes with the United States, uh, and uh, because you know Turkey was seen as being too close to Russia, so they're not being a, a loyal NATO member. But that, what that did, and we see this with the war in Ukraine, and we saw this at the end of March with the negotiations, that put Turkey in a situation to, to be a go-between uh, between NATO and Russia. And that's, you know, that was useful at the time. It actually apparently came close to, to, to making a deal. Or the Russians said that they were willing to make a deal, but then, uh, the, then the, the Ukrainians pulled back after Bucha. But, the, uh, you know, so, so again, to be, Erdogan has to play it so that, he's, uh, so that he's still part of NATO and he's still respected in NATO. So that's why I think that he, he gave in, you know, he accepted uh, the new Sweden and Finland as being coming NATO members, but he doesn't want to lose this position of being somewhat independent. So that's the way I read the, his actions. Now, also, there's some stuff going on with him in Greece, right? Yeah, that's complicated. Everyone in Italy is an expert on Turkey, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I give you, I give you what I see, but I don't have you know great insight on that. Are you following that situation in Greece? Because what I know is. When John Kiriakou used to show with me, every time Erdogan came up, John Kiriakou hated his guts. And it was largely 
related to the Greece stuff. Mm. There's a long history of animosity between Greek officials and Erdogan, right? Yes, Greece and Turkey obviously have uh, a lot of issues. Turkey's much much bigger and more powerful in the region and has the the goal of, of becoming a, a dominant power. And so many people will accuse Erdogan of wanting to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, essentially. Uh, and obviously that means military-wise, that means doing things, and, and territory-wise in the past, that means doing things that, that are to the detriment of Greece. Absolutely. So there's, uh, you know, that's that's pretty out in the open, I think. Yes. Didn't he declare some area, the property of Turkey, that was actually the property of Greece? And he's just like, whatever, we're taking it. The water or something. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's my understanding that they declare a large a large area of, of waters, which goes right up to or into Greece's territorial waters, uh, saying that they can they can dispose of it how they wish, making a deal. Uh, I think with Libya being involved, so that is yeah. uh, the way Turkey. The way Turkey uh, acts sometimes in the Mediterranean is that the other uh, other countries around them, like Greece or other smaller countries, uh, are don't have the right to tell them what to do. So don't have a right, even the right to <laughs> even the right to oppose them when they do whatever they want. Now, so take us through this recent election in Italy. What we're hearing in the mainstream media now in the U.S is a right-wing nut won the prime minister's role in Italy. And she should not be listened to by anyone. And if high-tech media uh, like Twitter bans her speeches, she deserves it. Is that the story you're getting essentially from the mainstream media, Jason? Yeah, that's all we're hearing here in the United States. So well, it's wrong on multiple levels. Okay, so take us to that, Andrew. <laughs> Well, first of all, the yes, the the woman who who is the leader of the party which won the most votes in the election is right wing, and her party does is a descendant from the, the post fascist party. That is, people who uh, in politics uh, were say, said that Mussolini was not was not such a bad guy. So she does come from that lineage, and she said that even Ooh. when she was young. She said <laughs> but isn't that, when that she bad? Was younger. Yes, but let me get to the point here. The um, today, there's nothing fascist about their policies. They have uh, somewhat conservative policies um, on on some issues, somewhat such as immigration, and in particular on on family, you know, and culture. Uh, but they have, but there's really no no area where you could say there's nothing totalitarian about them. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing that's a particular threat to democracy, in my view. And the people who are actually, you know, fascist nostalgics or something are probably the one or two percent of their voters. So a very small number of people. And Georgia Maloney has been in she's been a government minister before. She's been in politics for for 15 years now, uh, at least. And she's never shown anything, um, anything that would make you worry about that, you know, the Mussolini angle. So that's that's the first thing. There's no I mean, there's nothing totalitarian about them. So saying that she's post fascist, there's some there's a historical aspect to it, which is true. But you have to say, well, what does this party stand for today? And what they stand for are some right wing policies and other policies which are, frankly, um, going to be far too normal. 
in a certain sense. Uh, on, uh, on the Ukraine war, she has staked out a very, very pro-NATO position to prove that she can be credible. Uh, and, and it's going to be very hard for her to go back on that. Uh, so she's unlikely to, to change that. On Europe, she's, well, Andrew, it's not going to be let easy. Me ask you, let me ask you this. Does, how's her temperament? How's her personality? Is there anything about her temperament that is fiery or El Duce-ish? <laughs> she likes to give uh, rousing speeches. We can say that. But otherwise, uh, from she, she has, especially now, uh, shown herself to be quite under control. And she's seen as also being more, um, let's say, more calculating and reasonable than, for example, the head of the League Party, which is another party which is mostly, for the most part, right-wing party, uh, especially on immigration and cultural issues. Uh, and the head of that party, Salvini, is someone who's much more prone to provocation uh, the type of political provocation that you might expect of a, you know, a party that's that's considered outside of the mainstream. Now, so how bizarre did you think the Twitter banning her speeches was? Well, that that's absurd. Um, there's again the the we need to look at the Italian elections this way. The center right parties. There's three main center right parties. Got almost the same amount of votes they got in the last general election, which is almost five years ago. They got a little bit more, half a million more votes, which is not a lot overall. But the votes moved around inside their coalition to this party it's called the Brothers of Italy, which is led by Meloni. And because, and what everyone said is that the reason she did well is because she so showed herself to be more consistent politically. And people were got tired of the inconsistency uh, of the other, especially of the League Party. So this has not been this huge shift to the right in Italy. What there has been is a a, uh, a victory by this coalition against the center and the left, which were not allied. Because what happened is that the other parties, which will now be in the opposition, if they had joined together, they would have had almost the same amount of votes. But they have different views. Some of them are centrist, you know, centrist sort of establishment. Others are former populist, like the five-star movement, uh, and others are more, are the Democratic Party, which has become, um, you know, somewhat cultural elitist party, as you might, as you might expect also from centrist Democrats in the U.S. Um, so it's not this huge shift, but what you're going to have is you're going to have a government which um, is going to be further to the right on some issues, but again, um, it's, Italy is not a—it's not a place where she can, um, you know, affect the freedom of speech or of the media. Uh, there, are, there are institutions which would not allow this government uh, even to put people in cabinet secretaries who are anti, particularly anti-European or pro-Russian or anything like that. That's just, it's not going to happen because the institutional architecture here won't allow that to happen. Now, let me ask you, after the pandemic, how do people in Italy, what is their aftertaste? Because Italy had major lockdowns, right? And now that we're essentially, the pandemic's over so effectively, how do people in Italy feel about that experience that they had? Andrew? 
Well, I know you always agree with Joe Biden, so here you go agreeing with him again. The pandemic's over. Um, <laughs> the, Only yes, in Detroit. The, <laughs> the, uh, the caseload is actually, the case numbers are actually going up, have been going up in the past week. But here, there's no longer, uh, until a few days ago, you still had to wear masks on, on public transportation. Now, the only place is really hospitals and nursing homes. Um, and Italy has gotten back to almost normal. I'd say, you know, someone like me who does a lot of conferences and public events, there's tons of events going on uh, and people are traveling and going everywhere. And people are also back in the office a lot more than in the United States from what I saw just a month ago there. Um, you know, the U.S. is a lot of people aren't going, ha- haven't gone back to the office. Uh, here people are, you know, work is, is somewhat back to what it was before. People certainly politically are not willing to uh, would not be willing to go into a lockdown or anything close to that now. Although, for the for the most part, the majority of the majority of the country sees it for pandemic, and you know we had to get people had to get vaccinated and wear their masks, and that was a terrible time, and we've gotten through it. And there's a there's a small minority which made it an issue in the election campaign, uh, being against vaccinations, against the so-called green pass, a vaccination certificate, uh, and they didn't get very far uh, in, in the election campaign. So I, I don't see a, a particular backlash in the, in the population here as to what happened during the pandemic uh, in terms of government, seeing it as government overreach. There's a lot of criticism, sure. Uh, but people sort of take it for what it is now. Now, uh, has how is Italy being affected? I'll call it the World Economic Forum green agenda, the environmental agenda pushed by the corporates at the WEF. Is that affecting Italy? Because I noticed it's affecting a lot of economies in Europe. You see now it affected the Dutch, for instance. Is that a factor at all in Italy, Andrew? It is on the on the energy side, obviously. Um, Italy, if to go back a little bit, Italy uh, does not have nuclear energy. Uh, Italy, like many European countries, actually all of the European Union has a has a system where energy prices are set uh, in an absurd way, uh, and where Energy prices have gone up intentionally because of the way the European market is set up. Uh, that is that they, they increase the cost of fossil fuels over time in order to force countries to do more renewables. But, of course, the renewables come along slowly. And what they we all found out this year is that you can wish it, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it works. Uh, you know, Italy and like many other European countries... Got, gets a lot of gas, got a lot of gas from, from Russia. Italy still gets some gas from Russia, um, despite the situation. And the, so the, the long-term, the policy of pushing the, what they call the ecological transition, there's actually a government minister, like a secretary, for the ecological transition. Um, you know, this policy has created... Uh, obviously, a serious energy, serious energy problem here in Italy. Um, other than that, it's you know there's there sort of specific aspects of it. There's been a lot of government incentives to weather weatherproof homes, 
buildings. A lot of money was was given out for that, and people are just fine with that. <laughs> Getting money from the government to fix up their homes and buy new windows and stuff like that. That's so they sort of mix the two things together, you know, uh, more energy environmental efficiency with with sprucing up the economy. Well, obviously, the situation with Russian energy is in the news now. So what happened? They, Italy is now issuing a statement that they're going to be taking Russian energy, as I understand it. What's going on there, Andrew? Well, Italy still gets some gas uh, from Russia that comes through Austria. And what happened is that the... Um, this pipeline got blocked because Russia was supposed to, Gazprom, I think, was supposed to pay uh, a sort of security deposit or insurance on on this on the gas coming through this pipeline. And they're supposed to pay about 20 million euros, you know, about $20 million. But they wanted to pay in rubles because they can't pay, by the way, in the other currency. Uh, and uh, so they couldn't pay and they didn't pay. So the gas has stopped coming, coming for a few days. Uh, so Italy stepped in and said, well, we'll pay for it. You know, we'll pay for it because we need that gas. So Italy has a uh, gets gas from the south, from North African countries, from Morocco, uh, from Libya. Uh, Italy, gets, Italy has its own gas fields in the Mediterranean, uh, which could be upgraded significantly, um, which... There's a lot of talk about doing it in Italy, but there's environmental opposition to this, saying, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have more. <laughs> we shouldn't be pumping more gas. But it's going to be you know, an expensive winter. Energy, you know, electricity just went up 60%. 60% in electricity bills. Uh, it's under government regulation. They're allowed to, the government's allowed to tell utilities if they can raise their rates and they just raised told them they could raise them 60 percent uh, and they're worried about having enough gas to get through the winter and and they say that's at 90 percent of what's needed now but in february if it's too cold in february there could be problems so italy is trying to make sure they they keep that exception to keep getting some russian gas coming in uh, because otherwise it's going to be very difficult to have all the energy they need and jason goodman any questions or comments for andrew spanish well, um, you know, it's we were talking earlier about the notion of big tech silencing the prime minister of Italy. And I mean, frankly, it's uh, it's not surprising. They've already done it to the president of the United States. And I think it was uh, I've expressed my dissatisfaction many times with Donald Trump taking no action whatsoever while he was still the president. We could have known about all of this uh, questionable Twitter stuff two years before Elon Musk ever dug it out. So I think it's par for the course. If they don't like who gets elected, doesn't matter what country you're in. Big tech and this, you know, the machinations of these people will be will be seen. Yeah, you know, these in this case, in the case of Italy, it's, you know, it's absurd. I'll say it again. And it's, it's much would be much worse than with Donald Trump. You could say, OK, well, Donald Trump at a certain point, there was January 6th, you know, uh, and so he was doing something which was which was problematic, <laughs> which was a, a threat to democracy. Well, that's a conclusion. Say, you know, you can, that's a conclusion. Sorry that, to interrupt. You can, sorry to, you know, you sorry can to interrupt. Yeah. 
No, 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 no. We can't have big tech arriving at conclusions and taking actions. What you've just All stated right. is a conclusion. January 6th happened, Say, but taking Donald Trump off of Twitter because of it, I, I don't I don't agree that that's just. Well, yeah, well, let me finish. Well, let me finish what I was saying. So you can make that Sorry. argument, although I uh, would agree with you that it's not up to big tech to make that decision. Uh, I think that it's up to the laws. It's up to the laws of the of the state <laughs> to make that decision yeah. about free speech. All right. I yeah. absolutely yeah. agree with that. Uh, so, yeah. but, but, but even there, okay, you say we get, you get to a point, what should have been done is it needs to be decided by the courts in the United States, right? And on that. But here you're talking about someone who's likely going to be prime minister. She's not prime minister yet, but she's not making any threats to anyone, uh, besides the absurd fact of, of, of social media companies making that decision on their own. But, you know, what's the reason? Because you don't like her? You know, what is she doing that, that's causing, is she causing some public problem, some public threat? No, she's, she's not. Oh, there's, there's no reason whatsoever just saying, oh, she's a bad woman. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here and say that, you know, even if there were a proper process in, uh, you know, in place to evaluate something like that, she'd be so far from, I mean, there's nothing she's saying that's, that, that's going to rile anybody up in particular right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, my, my worry is that she's, that on the, the important points, she's not going to make enough changes. And I think a really important point is the European Union, uh, you know, the, the way the European Union is set up with its treaties, it has tremendous power over budgets of, of countries. And, and Italy, like many other countries, have become, you know, subservient to uh, a free market monetarist ideology, which tells them what, what kind of money they can spend and how to spend it. And... Uh, you know, when there's an emergency, though, when there's a real need, and there are lots of real needs, uh, I think governments need to be able to make those decisions. If the European Union won't make it together, then governments need to be able to make those decisions independently. And this is what I hope that she will do, uh, but it's it's not going to be that easy. So we'll see if she's actually effective or not. Now, is there any sense that Italy might take governmental action against Twitter. Are people talking about that over there, Andrew? Not that I've heard of, no. Um, I, I think it's seen as something which, you know, Italy can't really influence. These are, you know, the big tech companies are, are somewhere else and they make decisions without consulting a country like Italy. So would you have... You know, if if there's a situation, you know, we'd have to look into that. Is there a situation where the government here could, you know, uh, could intervene? We've seen that, you know, against Microsoft. We've seen that against Amazon. Uh, we've seen that against Uber. Uh, there's a lot of places where uh, where laws have been enforced against large companies that have been, you know, to exploit labor or, or you know, have a monopoly. So that's that's a definite possibility if there's a specific way to do that. But I don't know that, that there is regarding Twitter and social networks, except for paying taxes or something like that. Now, uh, when we talked before, I've gotten the impression that among EU countries, Italy and Greece, the southern countries have felt like second class citizens in the EU and that they were sort of abused by countries like Germany. Is first off, is that broadly true? Do you think, Andrew? It's there's truth to it, although it's a little more complicated in the sense that um, Italy, um, Portugal, also Spain, um, you know, Greece, all countries which 
10 years ago were forced to, to go through very harsh austerity and budget cuts. And yes, the, um, the, the political push for this came from Germany and from the Netherlands. Uh, but the, the ironic thing, and it's not funny, but it's ironic uh, the way it works, a contradiction, is that the money that these, com- these countries were supposedly forced to, to pay you know, they would they would take loans from the IMF and the European Union, but that money would just go back to pay off German and French banks, which had invested in their state bonds. And so they weren't even getting any money. They were just being forced to cut their budget, and, and people were dying for lack of health care. Uh, here you had bridges falling apart because of lack of maintenance. Uh, and so it's certainly Germany is seen as a country which uh, which has which is responsible for for that type of policy it's changed a little bit in recent years yeah that's that that's what i'm getting at actually if you think germany is going to face any retribution it might not be explicit but you think they'll face any retribution now germany's facing some serious economic hard times andrew well germany actually today just showed that the, the way the European Union works is, is a farce uh, with all these budget rules and, against, and, and the rules against state intervention. Because Germany today announced 200 billion euros of aid uh, to their economy, to businesses and families, because of energy costs. They didn't wait around. They didn't go negotiate with the European Commission and say, oh, we can't do that because there's all these budget rules. They just say, we have an emergency. We're going to spend the money to make sure that our people aren't suffering. You know, and that's, that's, that's causing a storm here, right? Because everyone's been saying, and the Italians unfortunately believe it, that, you know, that European politics should, decisions should all be made together. We should all make them together. We're all in this together. But what's happened over and over again over the years is when a large, you know, more powerful country, Germany and France, for example, when they have their own crisis— they just deal with it. They don't wait around to decide along with everyone else. They just deal with it. So that's an opening. That's an opening also for Italy, for this new government to, to put its foot down. And we'll see if they do that. I, I often now, find the people who are screaming that we're all in this together are the first ones running for the exit as soon as it's every man for themselves, which is basically it is. Yeah, that's what they that's what they show. You know, it. it it's we've got all these rules. We'll do all this. But, geez, uh, if there's a real problem, then we'll have to deal with it. And that's what that's what the, the pandemic as a whole showed also with government budgets. Right. You know, the United States created a massive amount of, of money of aid to people. Uh, the U.K. did it. Japan did it. And even Europe did it, although on a smaller scale. Right. For up until then, they said, oh, no, we can't do it. We have to worry about the public debt. And then everyone just raised a lot of public debt because there's an emergency, right? So the question is, you, you can spend all the money you need. You just have to spend it well. If you don't spend it well, uh, then you end up creating problems like inflation, right? But it's not, we don't have to go to the Chinese to get our money, right? And that's what the, one of the, the, the fundamental problems with this European thinking is, is that, is that states cannot actually make their own economic policy. Economic policy is determined by what the financial markets allow you to do. And, you know, hopefully <laughs> we'll, uh, Italy will start, will start challenging this a little bit more uh, with this government. Although it's not easy because there's treaties and there are institutions that, that have the ability to check uh, the government. And they do it. They intervene.
Well, Andrew Spanis, thanks so much for a great appearance. And thanks for explaining what's going on in Italy. By the way, how's the weather right now? And how have you heard anything about what the weather is supposed to be like this winter? I'm hearing some people in Europe are predicting an unusually harsh winter. Are you hearing that, Andrew? I, I've been too busy to check on that, although I should. I'm hoping there'll be a lot of snow because I like to ski and I'm pretty close to the mountains here. Um, there's there, there's talk about that the winter could be there could be a harsh cold uh, towards the end of the end of the winter. That's one thing people are saying. Uh, otherwise, I don't know if it's if it's seen as, um, you know, it's, it's going to be more harsh in particular. I'll check it out. Otherwise, right now it, it got cool for a little while, but suddenly it got warm again. Now it's been in the been in the sixties, mid sixties, up to seventy the last couple of days. So I think it's a little bit warmer here than it is over there right now, at least on the east coast, now, right? Are you saying that skiing? Are you near the Alps, actually, Andrew? Yes, about an hour and a half. Rub I can get in. up there. Go ahead, buddy. Rub <laughs> it in. <laughs> near yep. the Alps. Close by. But it sounds Close a little by. lovely. Get up to you can, two hours. Winter, you can get up to ten thousand feet. <laughs> that's great. A harsh winter obviously means big e- economic problems for a lot of people. So, yes. thanks so much, Andrew Spanis, and tell people where they can find your writing. They can find it at Transatlantico. That's Transatlantic with an O at the end. Dot info, and there's a. There's an English page. A lot of it's Italian, but if you look up top, you'll see an English page or just my name, andrewspanis.com. Fantastic, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us on The Backstory. We'll take a short break now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about more stuff. Like, what does the right wing mean anymore? I'll ask Jason. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Let's take a short break on The Backstory. On the backstory on 105.5 FM AM 1390. So, Jason, great appearance by Andrew Spanis, eh? Yeah, I didn't know all that stuff, so that was good. Yeah, and it really is a connected global economy in a lot of ways. Because, uh, you know, what, what b- bad happens to one country could very well affect you in America because the supply yeah. chain is so complex. Did you hear? In Syracuse, New York, they're announcing a big chip factory. Oh, I did not hear that. It's apparently the biggest construction project ever. Schumer was out talking about it. But anywhere? We all know that this. In Syracuse. Go ahead. I'm saying it's the biggest construction project anywhere ever, or just in Syracuse, biggest? I couldn't tell. It may have been. They implied ever in the state. Hmm. I could have misunderstood. Wow. They make air conditioning in Syracuse, Lee. Really? Carrier. Yeah, the carrier dome. That's all air conditioning stuff. Now, we were talking before, this new prime minister in Italy, she's accused. What is, let me ask a broad question. What are the terms left wing or right wing or populist really mean? 
For instance, if you ask a person, like in the conversation we had, I'm not going to defend Mussolini. Don't worry about that. Right. But I'm going to ask yeah. a question. What's your problem with Mussolini? Mussolini, unlike Hitler, was not an explicit racist who killed millions of people, right? What did Mussolini uh, do? Well, he was friends with Hitler and helped them, didn't he? The allies. I don't think I don't think he ever strangled anybody. If that's what you're implying, <laughs> being friends, being friends with Hitler, you know, I don't know what that means. If he didn't help kill people, but what did he do? And I'm really asking because I think if you think about it, you don't actually know because no one really right. knows. I think no one would have a good answer to that, Jason. Well, I definitely don't know enough about it to say. I just, the, the, the most I know about Mussolini is that the people in Italy obviously didn't like him because they were dragging him dead through the streets and doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, he must have been pretty hated, right? Yeah, that's a good sign that things are going wrong or the marriage is yeah. over. <laughs> but my point is, what is fascism actually? You know, communism, at least you can say the workers control the means of production and so on. What does fascism actually mean? I've understood it to mean that it is the merger of corporate and authoritarian government power. Well, so who said authoritarian? Where did uh, you get that well, from? If you Because if uh, you mean a merger of corporations and government power let's just use that without calling it authoritarian that sounds like right. every country in the world to me am i wrong uh, but that's why Is i say authoritarian because i think it's using private industry to you know jam people up in a way that the government can't well they they do so yeah. so my point is what's a country that's reined that in well i don't know and I'm not trying to be argumentative here. I'm trying to say that on a lot of these basic political philosophical issues, people actually don't know. And the terms, the press doesn't want people to know. And this goes to the point that I was making sort of earlier. Right wing seems to be, here's a working definition of right wing, something bad. When I hear <laughs> use in the media, right wing uh, is bad. Do you see what right. I'm saying, Jason? It seems to be all it is used to express, but yes. Yes. In other words, I don't know. the Because they're having elections in Brazil. Have you heard? And it's yes. Lula, the left wing guy, versus Bolsonaro, who's right wing yeah. guy, therefore bad, right? So According to what is Lula... Yeah. Was Bolsonaro believe? We don't know. Now, Bolsonaro did better than the media expected because the media's job is to say, this guy's right wing, therefore bad. But the people yeah. apparently didn't feel that way and voted, voted for him for in him. pretty large numbers. Yeah. Right. It's the, the first round of the election, so it's not over. And he'll probably lose because it was close between him and Lula, but it was not supposed to be close. And my point is that just when they describe him, every time it's right-wing extremists 
Bolsonaro. So, right. to me, as a libertarian, right wing means people who are opposed to government force. They like a smaller government. Do you have that basic real world definition, Jason? I guess I just sort of, in my mind, when they say right wing, I know they're talking about conservatives. And when they say uh, left, they're talking about, you know, people who want to uh, give out everybody's money and make your kids have uh, sex change operations and not tell you about it. It's become it's it's they both have taken on really radical and different meanings than they've ever really had before, haven't they? No, exactly. And uh, effectively, gives it no meaning, really. Right. That's exactly my point. And really, I think the meaning of right wing is purely something bad. It's an insult. Almost. It's a negative term. Does that make sense, Jason? The way the media uses it. Clearly. Yeah, go ahead. Clearly, clearly, that's what they're doing. They and 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 again, everybody, you know, I think very few people, Lee, who are the audience for mainstream news are even thinking about it or talking about it in the way that you and I are right now. It's just it's one of these I think, you know, I've spoken about this before. It's like when you hear da 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 your brain has been trained to associate that sound. It's not even a word or a language. It's just like a Pavlovian response that you hear that and you're thinking about McDonald's. And I believe the news and other things are trying to do exactly that with these terms. They say, oh, this guy's right wing. And they've spent months convincing you, oh, well, that's bad. I don't need to know anything about him or what that is. But bing, my brain goes off and now I'm triggered that that guy's bad. No, you're right. And the the role of advertising, the advertising industry has spent thousands upon thousands of hours on scientific research proving what works to make you want things. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it involves psychology. And as much as the CIA and MKUltra sounds to some people, it's not, but it sounds like a conspiracy theory. Madison Avenue, it's no conspiracy to say, they want to learn to sell you products, right? Right. So the same science that is used to sell you products is used to sell you candidates and political positions. Does it make sense, Jason? Yeah, that's exactly and I think it. People need to, and I think people need to realize how developed these techniques are. It's down to a science. Because any time they're spending billions of dollars, they want to know if something's going to work. So the people who do advertising are very good at their jobs, and they moved into politics. I think that's why you see the Hollywood politics connection. Because here's other people. A guy like Spielberg knows how to manipulate your emotions. Does that make sense? I mean, it's something that that I was very... uh concerned with when I was in Hollywood, not necessarily. I mean, when you say manipulate emotions, it inherently sounds sinister. But when you let's say you want to go to a steak restaurant and you say to your girlfriend, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? If she says steak, you're in business. If she says, why don't we go to uh, the fried chicken place? And you say, well, what about a steak? Aren't you trying to manipulate that person into your way of thinking? It's not necessarily sinister. It's just uh, it seems to me 
that they're trying to get people to make decisions that they want. And yeah. in movies, and, you're trying and, to manipulate the audience to an emotional standpoint where if we want to do a big scare, you might start off with something calm and a wide shot and then cut to something jarring, emotional, because you're trying to manipulate the audience's emotions so that they get the maximum entertainment value from the movie. Not sinister, but still a manipulation. Yeah, it's, it's sinister when the people doing it have an ulterior motive or a motive, right. you know, when you go see a movie, it's designed to entertain you. But if you suddenly right. find out the purpose of the movie is to get you to vote for Hillary and right. entertain you. <laughs> right. But, but you know what I'm saying, Jason. And yeah. sometimes yeah, people yeah. realize halfway through a movie. Have you ever been halfway through a movie when you said, wait a minute, they're trying to get me to vote for Hillary or something like that? Mm. Yeah. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, more on Truth Tuesday with our friend Jason Goodman on The Backstory. back on the backstory this is a show that brings you the truth behind the news i'm lee Stranahan, and we're joined today by special guest co-host jason goodman on the backstory hey jason great appearance by andrew spanis in the first hour and in this yeah. hour we have andrew arthur it's a double andrew show <laughs> yes so we'll be talking about immigration, and I'll be playing a clip I played yesterday. George Galloway, a, a leftist, if ever there was one, talking about immigration. And if I told you a leftist in America were talking about immigration, Jason, what would you predict his opinion is going to be? If you're, like there's nothing if you're wrong guess. with the border. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the border, and everybody who wants to immigrate to the United States needs to get money, college, health care, and a place to live for free. Right. Now, that is not Galloway's position. Good. I'll put it, you know, I, and I'll put it like this. Another thing, because I, I love Galloway, another thing I like about him is, do you know his opinion on abortion? I know very little, if anything, about him. He's pro-life. I'll say that again. So how is he left? He's, yeah, he's very... Because in America, that wouldn't make any sense. But he is pro-life for the same reason that he's anti-death penalty. Right? So yeah. and I, I take the same position, actually. I try to be consistent on what life I'm pro. And I don't like the power in the hands of the government to kill people. Because I fear they will misuse it. But Galloway right. is an anti-authoritarian leftist. And when you hear him on immigration, Jason, you're going to be shocked. Because if he were a Democrat on the left in America, there's no way he could hold that position. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah definitely could not. Well, or he would just they'd say he's a right-winger and a Nazi KKK member for wanting to not murder babies. Right. But he'll be talking about immigration coming up, and I'll be playing that for Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. And Jason, take us out on the name of the show. 
This is the backstory. Well done, sir. So Thank you. we got into a discussion yesterday because, you know, this is a place for better conversations. We got into yeah. a little debate about the concept of, I guess, being positive or negative about your politics. And I didn't say exactly what I thought. So I, I thought I'd try it again. So okay. on positivity versus negativity, I am positive because I think that's the only way you can be. In other words, I'm not in favor of being unrealistic. Does that make sense, Jason? I'm yeah. not saying be yeah. unrealistic, but I'm saying in any situation, I apply this broadly to anything. Let's say you're we're going to go on a trip together, Jason. We're going to hop uh -huh. in your car and go somewhere, right? Mount Rushmore. I, right. I could I could hop in the car and I could say we could crash this this <laughs> corner up here. We we could run out of gas, right? Right. And that makes yeah, me no, you really irritate yeah. to be on the trip with. Does it make sense, Jason? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I get you. I get you. you can't be constantly you can always anticipating be negative. the negative. Right, right, right. And it's not, it's not. If you gave me crap about it, and I said, "What are you unrealistic? You don't know car crashes could happen." No, right. That's not what you think. You know, car crashes can happen, but since we're not in one, why are you bringing up? Does that make sense? Yeah. Negative yeah, things I mean, can always happen. Right. Risk associated with everything, and you can't lead your life constantly thinking about the worst-case scenario. You've got to take precautions and prepare safely, but then hopefully plan for a good outcome. And you might find out that the person you're dealing with, if you, if you said to them, so you're worried about running out of gas, have you done anything? They say, yeah, I put a $50 bill in my wallet. Because right. what if you get out somewhere and the credit card doesn't work? That's not being right. negative. That's thinking through right. the possibilities. But yes. I think being positive about things is looking, you know, we should, I think we'll find a great restaurant in Rapid City, I could say. Right? Mm. That's an attitude. Yep. Does that make sense, Jason? Yes. They had a... Uh a monument brewery place that looked interesting, but I didn't get to try. Indeed. So you enjoyed yourself <laughs> to go to trip, right, Jason? I actually, I really did, Lee, and I really like Mount Rushmore. It was my second time there, and I enjoyed it even more than the first visit. And and, and, part and of, seeing you, of course, was a major highlight. That was the true highlight, and, and seeing, seeing you, you in your now a, natural environment. Danny enjoyed going out to a meal with you. And she, because she likes it when you're on the show. My girlfriend great. likes it when you're on the show. Lovely. And she liked hanging lovely. out with you as well. That was great. Good time, for sure. And say hi to her. You're, you, you two are a very wonderful couple, and I'm delighted that you found her. Yeah, she, she takes good care of me. And I, yes. I'm hard to take care of sometimes. So, <laughs> uh, but, and the lifestyle stuff I talk about all the time restaurants and weather and trips and travel and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to remember it's not all politics. And I think if you, that's why I like to talk about computers and high tech stuff, right? Yep. Because if it's yep. all yep. politics, it's very depressing. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I mean, you can't focus on the same thing all the time, no matter what it is. And uh, yeah, I think there's a good mix of conversation that we have on the show. And so let me ask Command Central, we have Al Killer, then Bobby? Okay, so let's go to calls. Thanks, Command Central. By the way, once again, I want to thank the crew here at the Backstory. They do a great job. And uh, tip your yeah. bartenders and waitresses. They're working hard for you out there. Yeah. That's a little stand-up patter. But uh, <laughs> 202-521-1320, Owl Killer, we're just talking about you. Perfectly. What's on your mind, buddy? Okay, so I, I want to get to what you guys are just talking about, but I have to touch on initially um, the fascism, what you guys are talking about. So fascism yeah. or far right is being, it's used as everybody knows Nazis are bad. Like there's no, nobody except Nazis think Nazis are good. Um, yeah. So the, it's a smear tactic. Okay, far, they somehow were able to, Say that the Nazis were far right. Now you talk about Mussolini. Mussolini was a socialist, and he coined the term fascism, where he said it was the merger of state and corporate powers. And Hitler was also um, not, the Nazi Party is the National Socialist Workers Party. So what fascism does is they they understood. Okay, they looked at communism and they saw that there's an inefficiency when government is in charge of stuff because there's no ramification. You can't get fired. You know, there, you, there's no reward for you producing more. So they saw that issue. So what they did is like, okay, we're going to pick corporations and we're going to throw our money and we're going to throw our manpower behind them and we're going to make them the winner. So that is, that is oh. the only real difference between co communism and fascism is but but you're right Jason it's all it's the authoritarian nature of it that that's where they that that is where like the real negative connotation comes from it's the authoritarian they crush all their you know yeah competition and dissension right yeah so that, that that's that's really but Ron Paul broke it down for me because you know he's like okay so if far if far right is fascist, okay, so where does a libertarian fall in? Where does an anarchist fall in? And it can't fall in on the right on that spectrum because the the real far far right is no government and far left is total absolute control. And then there are degrees, you know, breaking it down. You know, you have then you have the volunteerism society, and you know, then you have your uh, libertarianism. You have your republic. You have your democracy. But the same way they stole, we refer to this country as a democracy. It's not a democracy, but they've they've just made people just use it like it's 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 interchangeable with uh, a republic that we have. It's not, but that that's the same way they yeah. were able to steal. That's the same way they were able to smear everybody, um, because the because the media and schools and the politicians they parrot far right. You know they equate it with Nazism, and which is hilarious mm -hmm. in the sense that there's actually are actual Nazis, and they're being supported by the government in the West. They're, they're, right. yeah, they're in uh, Ukraine. We, we, no, it, that is the biggest oxymoron, uh, oxymoronic uh, point about it, is that there are actually Nazis, and they're being supported by the people that smear their, um, you know, that smear their opposition as Nazis, or far-right. 
And great mm. call as usual, Al Kohler. I got to move on for time reasons because I got a lot of calls on the line. But thanks so much for calling, Al Kohler. 202-521-1320. Let's go to Bobby. Bobby, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Uh, uh, yes, Lee. Uh, there's a couple of things which you may not have touched on, or you, I'm fairly sure you're aware of it. Uh, I wanted to give you an example, and maybe you could use it in explaining some of the things going on. There was a so-so movie about the flying saucers of Roswell with Martin Sheen. Uh, kind of semi-fun movie, no big deal. But they had a great thing with uh, Secretary of State Forrestal. He showed up at Roswell. And what did he say? This is going to get out. There's just too many people who know about it. It's got to get out. <laughs> what do we, we tell the most off-the-wall flying saucer people? We leak it all to them. So when the New York Times or the Washington Post or some so-called respectable organization gets a hold of this, we say, oh, yeah, you must have gotten it from the guys who say uh, the moon is made of green cheese and the Venetians are lizard men who have taken over uh, all the leadership positions of uh, the president and the prime ministers. And, yeah, did you see that? That was there three months ago. You must have gotten it from them. All of a sudden, it's good. Just like Roberts, the Supreme Court Justice is on the plane, maybe, maybe he was on that plane to Robert, uh, to Epstein's island. And so what happens? It's debunked. Quote, how is it debunked? There's a picture sent to these people who brought up the thing to begin with, and they say, there he is on the island. There he is in the water. Well, that picture was from two years ago. All of a sudden, that debunks the idea that Roberts was ever on that island with Epstein. Well, I think there is. A, you, we know we know the term conspiracy theory was coined by the CIA. Do we not know that, Jason? Well, they definitely had a memo where they said they wanted to smear people investigating the JFK assassination as conspiracy theorists. Yes. Great call, Bobby. And Jason, Juno was stationed at Roswell in the 50s, by the way. Uh, no. My father, golf pro Dick Stranahan. Oh, wow. My dad was, That's was stationed awesome. at Roswell in the 50s, and he didn't wow. see anything he said. That's what he wow. said. Yeah, they made so, him say that. <laughs> okay. okay. I, no, I don't think so. Joking aside, though, Lee, well, joking aside. This is similar to the yeah. conversation I was having with John Kiriakou. Perhaps there's a layer of military, CIA, whatever, that are the people who are not in the know on these secret programs, and they're there in the same place, but there's a parallel thing going on right under their noses. Yeah, no, I'm saying that was his experience, Yeah, having talked to him about it, but it does not say that was everyone's experience. And I think there's clearly a lot of stuff, which is why we like having Jamal Thomas on the show. Because uh, he knows a lot, of, a lot about the UFO stuff. There's a lot that the government hid. No question about it. So, yeah. 202-521-1320. Let's go to Tarif. Tarif, what's on your mind? 
Thank y'all gentlemen for taking my call. Thank you, Lee. <clears throat> Here I go. First, I'd like to say free drone and science. I have to make four points in one comment. Okay, this is my, I thought about something. I was listening to Tom Gongo and some other people in the, in the Duran. And we all know that it was the U.S. that done that, right? The North Stream Pipeline. But my opinion is this. It was suspect. the government that did it. It was a part of the government that did it that was uh, neocons, because you know we've got the war between the neocons and neoliberals. And I think, in my opinion, that the neocons done that to try to get rid of um, Biden and basically try to break up the DNC, right? So for the next two years, they can stand a chance of putting a person in office in 2024, right? And I think that person that they're going to push for is Ron DeSantis, not Trump. And they're going to try to put Mike Pompeo as vice president, right? Mr. Hey, CIA man. Ron, um, uh, Ron DeSantis, to me, is a, re- a reactionary. That's just my- Now, who's, who's they, they, Tarif? Let me just, you said they will put Mike Pompeo. Who's they? Um, your, 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 your neocons like your Steve Bannon, your, 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 your Cheney, your, your Bushes, those representing the government the neocon section of the government, like Henry Brzezinski's, you know what I'm saying? That click. So, so yeah, although I would disagree. Bannon is, is in fact a neocon, but he's a neocon who disguises himself as an anti-neocon. You, you know what I'm saying, Jason? Yeah, but he's also Bannon, not in the government anymore. Uh, right, and so I don't know who's... I don't see Bannon promoting Pompeo. I don't see that happening. Do you see that happening? Let's just take a step back. No, let's take a step back for a second, because actually John Mark Dugan had an interesting bit of information on this. He's received an email from an individual purporting to be a Danish uh, military operator who is part of NATO commenting that a bunch of individuals whose haircuts in general demeanor and style did not seem congruent with the military requirements of NATO member countries, that this group of guys showed up and that they had uh, Heliox rebreathing equipment with them, which is even more sophisticated than Nitrox and allows longer dive times and deeper dives than Nitrox but that these special operators were gone for six hours and then he doesn't really know what happened. And then right after that, the pipe blew up. So uh, I don't know that this would be done by neocons in the government or whatever. This was clearly a military decision made by somebody like, you know, the National Security Council, the CIA, Joe Biden, people like that is what it seems. I don't think Steve Bannon would have had anything to do with it. Yeah. Now, Truth, anything else? Because I got to move on for time reasons. Tarif? Okay, well, I want to add on to that. I'm here. Hear me? Yeah, um, I want to add on to that. The reason why I brought that up is because the U.S. is losing against Russia right now. And I think they're going to shift to the Pacific against China, trying to blockade China. If the neocons get in, like uh, like a, um, Mike Pompeo or a, like a uh, Ron DeSantis, to try to cause a conflict with the Chinese, to try to blockade the Chinese with their submarines, right? That's submarines. Bring- is Ron DeSantis a neocon, though, Therese? I mean, isn't he just sort of like a family man guy who's pissing off the people that want to destroy 
the U.S. economy and all that? I don't know that he's a neocon. Who? What a, who Pompeo? DeSantis? Who are you saying? De, DeSantis. DeSantis. I don't think he's primarily a neocon, but he could, he could be. I, I'm i not actually... I wouldn't be surprised if he falls in. About 10 years ago, before Trump, neocon basically described Republican foreign policy. Does it make sense, right. Jason? Yeah, no, it did around 9-11 and everything. I agree with that. All of George Everyone Bush guys were neocon. Yeah, George Bush buddies and certainly Bolton and guys like that. Yeah. And Ron Paul was a, a, a difference from the neocons. And remember when Ron Paul ran in the debates, he was mocked by every candidate on a stage. Do you remember that, Jason? I can't say that I specifically remember that. I'd watch, I would watch that again. I, I don't doubt it at all, but I didn't see that. So as soon as Ron Paul brought up a non-interventionist foreign policy, he was attacked by every other right. candidate on the stage. Because right. essentially, neoconism was Republican foreign policy for a while. Now it's yeah. in the middle, middle point. So I think a lot of grassroots Republicans view neocon as a bad word. Do you agree, Jason? Right. I think people who know what it means and are having their heads screwed on straight view it as a bad word. Yeah. So Greg Caltrief, 202-521-1320. Let's go to Ingrid in D.C. Hey, Ingrid, what's on your mind? Well, thanks, Lee. I'm happy for you that you're getting so many new callers. I couldn't get in yesterday, so this isn't necessarily off topic, but Carmine yesterday was talking about USA number one if we go to war. He has on more than one occasion stated that over and above being an American, he's first of all a Christian. And when he was saying he was okay with Bill Clinton because the economy was good, probably like many people, he didn't know what was going on in the 90s, but this is the period when Madeleine Albright was happy to kill 500,000 Iraqi children with sanctions. This is the period of the whole uh, Kosovo debacle. Yeah, she said it was worth it, right? She said it was worth it when asked directly. Yes. You mean Albright, not Carmine. I mean, yeah. you know, I think Carmine should check what his allegiance is if he considers himself a, a moral person. And going on to something else that was said yesterday was, well, to anyone who says it, who lets Biden off the hook by saying he's not in control and that he's senile. Good grief. He is, you know, Darth Brandon. He has been the 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 point of the sphere of evil for a long time and he yes indeed yes i agree i don't think you know people who are saying oh he has he doesn't know what's going on he sure as hell does he's he's uh he's known what's going on all along and people who, people who think that have not been following uh biden's career since the 80s when you go back and look in the 80s, a long time ago, how he was very active on Ukraine issues then. Almost no one knows that because who was watching Biden and paying much attention? Or Ukraine. Yeah, or Ukraine right. in the 80s. I mean, certainly nobody. 
But let, wait, let me ask yeah, you both so. a question. Don't you find it weird that if they're trying to create this like pop culture alternate identity, why did they choose Dark Brandon? Or, or did Ingrid say Darth Brandon? They, they made that comic character Dark Brandon to try to make him tough. But that's obviously an evil, like, why would they do that? It seems pretty misguided. No, it's Darth, D-A-R-T-H, like Star Wars, Darth. Right, Brand. right. Okay. And the, and the whole uh, red background <laughs> Philadelphia speech. The, the, right. The, but just prior to that, Ingrid, they released a meme that was Dark Brandon, that was supposed to be this, like, powerful phoenix-like rising i think it was based on the x-men concept of gene gray becoming dark phoenix which was this super powerful but ultimately evil version of the character it just seemed like a really weird decision from from a marketing standpoint for the president of the united states well we talked about it so so the bright red lighting so yes that's they made a few bizarre choices go ahead ingrid back to back to yesterday I'm very optimistic, uh, and well, I have to be. But I think you're you're wasting your time with left versus right and all these isms. And to to that point, tomorrow, Merrick Garland is going to be challenged. There's going to be a DOJ press conference kind of event, a demonstration in front of it by people calling themselves progressives for life or anti-abortion or something, and they are going to be calling for Merrick Garland's impeachment from that position, whatever it is. So, great call, Ingrid, and we got Andrew Arthur on, so I got to go, but I'll just say this, getting rid of left and right, saying that that's the solution, it's like saying, well, you know, we could solve the gas crisis if we simply got rid of gallons, let's not talk about gallons of gas anymore. No, that's a. I'm a, for it. A, <laughs> right, and that's all that is is a term of measurement. So left and right are fundamental ideas in politics, and defining them correctly is very important. But let's take a short break. When we come back, we're joined by Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies on The Backstory. And we are back on The Backstory on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. I'm Lee Stranahan, and we're joined today by guest co-host Jason Goodman on The Backstory. Hey, Jason. How you doing? Hi, Lee. Still good. Feeling good. I like those phone calls. Yeah, we have great callers, and we really yep. appreciate the community of callers on The Backstory. Joined now from the Center for Immigration Studies by the great Andrew Arthur, Okay, so we'll we'll call him back and get him online, because yeah. you're going to be fascinated by this quote from uh, George Galloway. It is going to sound like no leftist you've ever heard. But what I'm going to ask you, you know, one thing I was thinking about, Jason, I was thinking mm. about people who are leftists today, 
part of the problem is it's a point. Imagine you were leftists in the 20s or 30s or the end of the 19th century, right? So you're a uh-huh. communist and you're talking about people working in factories. In fact, uh-huh. a lot of those factory jobs or coal mining jobs or whatever that was unionized, they sucked. Those were brutal jobs, right? Yep. Sweat yep. jobs and so on. People dying so in I, there and everything. That's right. So I can see being on the worker side then. Yeah. Does that make sense? Now, well, I had a first taste of this, Lee. I, I did a commercial in Mexico in about 2010 or 11, you know, in 3D. And I brought certain crew members from Los Angeles who were my crew with the producer about our hours and everything because I've done a lot of foreign stuff. And But all the Mexican film crew workers that we did one day that went 25 <laughs> hours consecutive. I'm here. My, my crew was in triple overtime and they all loved me for it. But if you were a Mexican person on that crew, no union, no even semblance of a union and no you know, cinematographer there to make sure that your people got paid. They, those guys got paid for an eight hour day and were on set 25 hours. And that was normal. And now the people being unionized are Starbucks baristas. And have you ever met yeah, your Starbucks, Jason, and said to yourself, yes, those baristas, those poor people, yeah. You know, they're dying in the trenches to make the coffee, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, we have Andrew Arthur back on. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing finely, and thank you for having me today. Thanks for being on. Now, the first clip I'm going to play you, I'm going to play a clip. This is by a British politician, George Galloway, and George is on the left. He's a socialist, in fact. But I want you to listen to this clip. This is something that no Democrat, no one on the left in the U.S. could say. And I think you'll be fascinated by it. And I think you'll also see that there's nothing I think contradicts his principles here. He's showing a concern for workers. So let's play that clip. Hit it. I'm against mass immigration which beggars the countries that lose the immigrants and drives down wages and deleteriously affects the ability of the people of all colors in the countries that the immigrants arrive in, can't get a doctor's appointment, can't get into accident in emergency, can't get your children into school, can't get a job, can't get a decent wage because the labor market is constantly refreshed by masses of new people ready, able, willing to work for less wages than the people already in the country are working for. So I've always been against mass immigration. And I speak as the grandson of economic migrants myself. Britain needed my grandparents at the time in the 1920s, but they don't need them. No. Now, aside from his great accent, what did you think of that, Andrew? <laughs> is that, am I wrong, or would that be impossible to see someone on the left and, or a Democrat in the U.S. saying something like that? Well, you know, it, it's funny, Lee, because uh, I my memory is, you know, 
uh, strong enough to go back to 2015 when Senate, Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, who lists himself as a democratic socialist, made almost exactly the same points when he talked about open borders being a Koch brothers uh, plot. Um, and he literally said almost exactly the same thing. When you have open borders, when you have unlimited immigration, it's going to drive down uh, the wages. Uh, it's going to undercut the working conditions of similarly situated workers in the United States. Uh, and, you know, that's just basic logic. But if it's not basic logic, it's actually enshrined in the Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 212A7 of the Immigration and Nationality Act states that nobody shall come to the United States. Actually, it might be a five. Uh, to perform uh, labor unless the Secretary of Labor has determined that it's not going to adversely affect the wages and working conditions of an American worker. By that, they mean uh, either uh, a U.S. citizen or an immigrant who is lawfully here. So, yeah, I mean, it's basic economics. Uh, you know, I studied economics in college. I'm probably the only guy you're ever going to meet who drives around with a uh, in a white pickup truck with a Reagan sticker on the back who has read Das Kapital. But the fact is, you know, Karl Marx made the same uh, observations uh, with respect to laborers in the Midlands of England uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And, you know, uh, many conservative uh, economists have made exactly the same point. That's why we have immigration law. It's part of the reason why we have immigration laws and why the current situation at the southwest border is so troubling to me personally. I come from a, you know, a working class family. My father worked in a steel mill. My grandfather was a butcher. My other grandfather was a, a, a flagman on a railroad, which is not easy work. Um, so, you know, I, my, uh, one of my main concerns is about the wages and working conditions of disadvantaged Americans. And here's the thing, Lee and Jason, I mean, we have a history of, uh, you know, uh, you know, poverty and discrimination in this country. And, you know, as long as I've been alive, in fact, the year before I was alive in 1965, President Johnson declared war on poverty as some wag said after the fact, we declared war on poverty and poverty won. But we saw under President Trump that when we limited the level of illegal immigration to the United States, wages went up across the board. They didn't just go up across the board for Goldman Sachs executives uh, and Starbucks baristas. They also went up across the board for uh, you know blacks in the inner city, for Hispanics uh, in this country. For Asians, they all saw their highest levels of unemployment or their lowest levels of unemployment in history. And, you know, you would think that that would be uh, a case study uh, for what we should do, but it's the exact opposite. Now, you'll note that uh, Senator uh, Sanders has changed his tune of late. He's joined the chorus of those who call for open borders. But, you know, his fundamental point was, you know, sound for what it's worth back in 2007. Then, uh, Senator Joe Biden was making many of the same points. So, you know, I believe it was Dorothy Parker or um, the, uh, the woman that wrote The Little Foxes who said, you know, I can't conform my political views to shape current fashions. Um, Lillian Hellman. Uh, and, you know, I'm pretty much the same way. I just don't understand why they're not. No, right. And it's bizarre to me as well. And when I made this point, 
a lot of Republicans identify with it. They're concerned about the effect on wages. And I've seen no Democrats who I've talked to ever express concern for the effect this immigration policy is having on workers. And I think, Jason, have you talked to Democrats who are sane on immigration because they're concerned about workers? Because I haven't. Oh, definitely not. No, I mean, the people who I speak to uh, on the street and even friends of mine, they're not, it's, they just, they don't have any kind of, uh, you know, cogent, uh, logical explanation for their beliefs. They're just pre-programmed talking points that they're spitting out. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. To provide a little bit more historical, uh, you know, background for that, to your point, Jason, um, you know, it, back in the 1960s, uh, Fritz Mondale, a uh, senator from Minnesota, and his fellow senator from Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey, actually, I think he was vice president at the time, went down to the southwest border in support of Cesar Chavez and his efforts to organize the United Farm Workers. They went down to the border as a show of support that we needed to shut the border so that we could wa- uh, raise the wages and improve the working conditions of Hispanic laborers uh, in California and along the southwest border. You're just not going to find, you know, it's curious in this day and age, people like you're not going to find any Reagan Republicans or Eisenhower Republicans, certainly not Bill Scranton Republicans. But, you know, I never thought that we would live in an age when we wouldn't have Hubert Humphrey Republicans or Fritz Mondale Republicans around. Um, And again, you know, this is it's bizarre. It's a world turned upside down where we have, you know, populist Republicans, you know, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, of Florida, my old boss, uh, you know, when he was with the House, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, border state uh, candidates who are calling to limit illegal immigration in the United States for exactly these reasons. So, um, you know, I don't know what to say. Again, I don't want to say that, you know, I've never heard a Democrat say these things because I have, but I haven't heard one say it lately. Yeah, no, Andrew, you said something. I got to stop you. You worked for Ron DeSantis? Uh, Yeah, I was his staff director on the uh, uh, House National Security Subcommittee. Okay. So, you know, we got to ask you some questions about him. So how would you define this? We were talking about this earlier in the show. How would you define DeSantis' politics in, in, in a word or phrase? What, where does he fit, do you see? Um, again, you know, I, uh, the, uh, the best way that I can describe Ron DeSantis is he is the most intelligent man in the room. When you're in Washington, D.C., every congressman believes that they're the most intelligent person in the room, and the role of a staffer is to make them look that way. I never had to do that for Ron DeSantis because he was a man who had vision, who believed in the constitutional principles of this country. I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but you know he believed in the constitutional uh, principles of this country, and he also had vision. Uh, you know he had vision for what he believed. Uh, was good for the uh, citizens of his district. He represented, you know, part of Jacksonville in Congress. But what was good for the American people, uh, you know, even more. And again, if that required him to, uh, you know, counter prevailing narratives and gore a few sacred bulls, well, so be it. 
Um, but, you know, he's also practical. He's very, you know, even-tempered, even-handed, even-minded. Um, but he's not a man who's going to sacrifice his principles. That's probably the best way to put it. Would you say he's a neocon? Would I say he's a neocon? Fortunately, uh, we never really had to, uh, you know, get into issues like that. Um, and, again, he's not a fellow who's easily defined. He wants what's best for the United States. And again, every politician wants uh, what is best for the United States, but uh, or at least will say that. But, you yeah. know, he's he's not a man who seeks political favor. Uh, you know, he's a man who seeks political solutions. And did either one of you see the man and DeSantis, they were in a field and this guy's property had been destroyed by one of the hurricanes down there. And the guy was saying, I'm a Democrat, but I'm going to support this man. DeSantis seemed like a guy who generally is on the ground and can reach people because he's there doing the work. That's what yeah. struck me from that video. Did you see that video, Jason? I saw, I saw an article mentioning that the guy said that, but I did not see the video. Yeah, I saw the, the rather part? exceptional yeah, I saw the exceptional video of the of the two guys standing in the field, and the one guy says, uh, "I'm a Democrat, but I tell you who I'm voting for: Ron DeSantis." Um, and again, you know, he rolls up his sleeves. He does he does the work. Yeah, that's, that's what um, you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, when you and, when you uh, said he's the smartest guy in the room, I'm I'm gonna guess that what you mean is he preps, he does the work because he wants to be the smartest guy in the room, right? He does the work. He preps for appearances. Is that right? Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, no, that's that, that's exactly right. Often in Washington, when we say that somebody's the smartest guy in the room, uh, you know, it's a derogatory statement. And, you know, I was concerned <laughs> that it was going to be taken that way. But it's not. I mean, he is, you know, you and I, all three of us, have met any number of Ivy League graduates. And remember, uh, Governor DeSantis is Yale and Harvard Law School, uh, who, you know, can't find their way to, you know, through the subway. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's not one of those guys. He's amazingly practical. He studies hard. He reads all the time. God knows when he sleeps. Um, but, you know, he, and it's not, Lee, it's not just that he knows a lot, you know, there are plenty of people who know a lot, but, you know, vision is really the one word that I would attach to him. He understands the big picture. Um, I think it was Isaiah Berlin who talked about foxes and hedgehogs and, you know, foxes know lots of little things. Hedgehog knows one big thing. He's both fox and hedgehog. You know, he knows one big thing about a whole lot of things. And again, you know, I'm not seeking a job. I'm a 56-year-old man. I'm never going back to Washington, D.C. But, uh, you know, he would be a very good leader for this country. And, you know, and you look at what's going on in Florida. Those are tough times. You know, you had the largest hurricane go through that state in recorded history. And, you know, he's there on the ground getting the lights on, getting the fuel delivered, getting the bridges built. That's the kind of guy he is. Um, and I mean, you know, we need we need a difference maker. We need a, a solution, uh, you know, crafter uh, in these troubled times. Well, I appreciate you providing that insight because it's fascinating. I, you know, as soon as I meet someone 
who's worked with him directly. I got to take advantage of your wisdom and your insight into yeah. Ron DeSantis. Thank you, Andrew. Jason, anything <laughs> for you? Uh, no, that is good insight. And I have a very good feeling about Ron DeSantis as well. You know, I again, I didn't see that clip, but just hearing you guys describe it, I think a lot of people who say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, that is going to be based on either what their family, whether it's their parents or their wife or their husband, or if they didn't like Donald Trump, they're going to say, I'm not a Republican. I don't think these are people who have really sat down and thought about what their politics are. I mean, somebody whose field is flooded out and sees that the governor of their, they, they probably don't care if he's a Democrat or a Republican. They say, that guy is the guy who knows what he's doing and knows how to run this complicated place. I'll vote for him. Yeah, that, that was my take. Andrew? Yeah, no, um, you know, it, it, again, I, you know, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to, you know, be viewed as a guy who's just throwing plaudits in his direction, but, you know, when you think of uh, the sort of person that you want to send to Washington, that you want to be your representative, that you want making the tough decisions, he's the man. But, you know, even more importantly, I think, you know, this particular hurricane, Hurricane Ian, has underscored the fact that he's not just a guy who thinks big thoughts. He's a man who does big things, who's not afraid of a challenge. Uh, and, you know, look, there are storms. There are political storms. There are uh, you know, meteorological storms. And, you know, our country needs to be guided through those. This is a tough world these days. And you want somebody with a steady hand on the tiller. And, you know, he's a former Navy man. So, you know, um, again, there are a lot of good candidates out there. But if I woke up uh, the morning after the election in 2024 and found that Ron DeSantis had won uh, the majority of electoral votes in this country, I would know uh, that it is in good hands. And of course, last week, Ron DeSantis was being talked about by Democrats as if he should be arrested for human trafficking yeah. after right. sending. What did you make of that kerfuffle, Andrew? Well, kerfuffle was actually exactly, yeah, kerfuffle was exactly the word that I used to describe it. Because, you know, the, the governor was making a point. Uh, and that is, it's easy for people in positions of comfort to ignore the realities of the border. You know, if, you know, all your needs are being attended to, you know, your, your stocks are doing well and your kids are in good schools, everything's good. But when we're talking about the southwest border uh, and you're talking about, you know, the small communities of Valde and Carrizo Springs, Del Rio and Eagle Pass, those people are suffering. Uh, they're going through hard times. And, you know, the individuals who were sent to uh, Martha's Vineyard were individuals who apparently wanted to head to the Northeast. Uh, again, people, uh, you know, I've actually heard people who I trust, who, you know, I, I have faith in, you know, who are who viewed it as a stunt. But, you know, as I always say, a stunt is a political uh, gambit that pays off for the other side. So, um, and, you know, he's made his point. So I have Governors Abbott uh, and Governor Doug Ducey over in Arizona when they bust those folks, you know, away from the border to towns in the north, to places in the north where they want to be. Um, you know, they're providing a service to those individuals. In fact, I think it was the 
New York Times or the Wall Street or the Washington Post that talked about how this is actually a good thing for the migrants, you know, when they're acting all surprised. Um, it was the New York Times, actually. But, yeah, I mean, these folks don't want to be at the border. There's nothing for them there. It's not where they intended to go in the United States. These governors are facilitating that. And now a lot of these sanctuary city grandees are being hoist on their own petard. Now, uh, uh, this issue brought the issue of the Martha's Vineyard get people brought up an issue for me. And I'll, I'll address it at first as a matter of terminology. But it's a wider question than that. A few people had referred to them as he sent illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. But technically, that's not true, is it? These were people who were seeking asylum. But I don't bluntly think that people are really seeking asylum. I think they're gaming the system and taking advantage of a loophole. So I don't want to refer to them as illegal immigrants because that's not what they were doing. But I don't want to refer to them as people seeking asylum as though it's legitimate. Does that make any sense, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I wrote a 2000 word post um, the other day that talked about uh, exactly these issues. I explained how you know, notwithstanding the fact that they're applying for asylum, uh, that there's still aliens who are subject to uh, to removability and therefore uh, are, you know, removable from the United States. But the flip side of that is most of these folks, Lee, are, in fact, gaming the system. In fact, of all people, I think it was Fareed Zakaria the other day in the Washington Post uh, who talked about the disconnect between uh, the you know the U.S. asylum system and you know the fact that these folks are you know fleeing poverty you know fleeing crime uh, you know general uh, you know conditions of unrest those things are you know they're things that the United States government should address through its foreign policy but the, those aren't bases for asylum in the United States. And again, you know, you hear a lot of pundits who don't really know anything about immigration who say that, you know, DeSantis or Abbott or Ducey should be prosecuting, prosecuted for transporting illegal aliens. Those people have never read the Immigration and Nationality Act and they're full of balloon juice. So, I mean, it is, you know, again, there's nothing illegal about, you know, moving an alien who has been released by DHS from one point in the United States to another if that's where they want to go. If you, you know, load a van full of illegal uh, migrants, you know, in Juarez and drive them across the border, or you pick them up three miles, you know, after they've evaded Border Patrol and drive them into the interior. Yeah, you're transporting illegal migrants. That's crime. It's a felony in uh, certain instances. Um, but, you know, what they're doing is simply facilitating the onward transit of people whom DHS has determined should be allowed to transit further into the United States. That is in violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act, the release of those individuals. The further transport isn't. Now, let's hear from a woman who I believe is a vineyard owner. Does Nancy Pelosi own a winery? Jason, oh. do you know? Uh, maybe in California. She has some property up in Sonoma County, so I'm assuming. But yeah, let's hear this. Laura Loomer got into that, yeah. Right. So let's hear from Nancy Pelosi 
on immigration. Hit it. Is to have comprehensive immigration reform. We have a shortage of workers in our country, and you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. So there's Nancy Pelosi. People need these workers. Andrew, that's what she's mm-hmm. saying. What say you, sir? <laughs> um. The first thing I'm going to say is um, I, I don't even know how to comment on that statement. <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're talking yeah. about, if I were to make that's, that statement, I'd be that's why I threw it to you, Andrew. So yeah. I have nothing to say either. But but I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Lee. But um, you know, when it comes to a shortage of workers in the United States in any industry, uh, you know, this this saw that there are certain jobs that Americans won't do is just wrong. In fact, there is no job in which there aren't a significant number of Americans working. I believe there are only four job categories, in fact, in which the majority of people who work in them uh, are, uh, you know, foreign born. But, you know, Australia is a place that grows a lot of grapes and, you know, they grow a lot of other crops. Australia, you know, doesn't have a problem uh, with labor because it takes care of its, you know, agricultural labor issues as well. The same is true of many agricultural countries, Uh, the Union of South Africa, the uh, Republic of South Africa now, um, you know, many other places around the world. In fact, Ukraine, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, and yet, you know, you never saw a call from, uh, you know, the Ukrainians for, you know, additional migrant labor to come and help harvest the crops. Um, so, you know, that's a canard if, uh, you know, and again, I'm familiar with farming. Uh, you know, I'm a, from a farming family. Um, and, you know, with, uh, you know, it used to be, Lee, in fact, here's a factoid for you. At the turn of the night of the 20th century, about half of all Americans worked on farms. By the end of the 20th century, only about 2 to 3% of all Americans worked on farms thanks to mechanization. So, you know, the, the labor needs that we have, you know, even in some, you know, what are thought of as labor-intensive industries really just aren't there. Uh, you know, if we're concerned about bringing in crops and food security is the policy of the United States and should be, um, you know, we can uh, offer tax breaks to farmers to invest in mechanization so that they can do without that labor. But the fact is that labor is also there. If you pay people a fair and living wage to go and do that work, they will do it. In fact, there's an entire industry of people who own uh, you know, heavy machinery that go, you know, from the United States up to Canada and back down again to bring in the wheat harvest. So, you know, th- that is that's a complete canard. Uh, and it's one that with due respect to Ms. Pelosi. And again, I used to be in her district when I lived in San Francisco. She doesn't own a winery, uh, to the best of my knowledge. But, um, you know, it's one that she should know better than to make. I I agree. And the other thing is, of course, the H-1B visa program means that a lot of workers who come into the United States are in the software industry, Jason, not the lesbian industry. Right. Yeah. Well, in fact, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say towards that, it's, it's a little bit racist for her to say, oh, we need these immigrants so they can, you know, 
pick our crops and clean our bathrooms? What about the fact that this is supposed to be a place where if you're sitting in Bangladesh with a great idea about how to do nuclear fusion, you can come to America and realize your dreams? So, or clean out our freezer full of ice cream in case of right. Pelosi. <laughs> right. So, so do you think it's hypocritical of Pelosi to act like an advocate for workers, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, uh, I have great respect for Speaker Pelosi. I, I just think that it was a very for, uh, uh, short-sighted statement on her and part. Be, and because, again, if you truly support American labor, you support clock. American labor. Andrew, we're up against the clock. But great appearance, Andrew Arthur. And thanks for your insight on Ren DeSantis. Thanks so much. Thanks to Andrew Spanis being our first hour guest. And thanks once again to my friend, the great Jason Goodman, for co-hosting today on The Backstory. 